All right, greetings. There we go. We are live. Good to see everybody. Happy Wednesday night. Are we ready to jump into this? Let's let's open up in prayer and then we'll we'll get into the study. So, Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening. We lift it before you and we pray that as we study your word together, that it would that you would have your effect in our lives. Father, I thank you. Your word does not return void. It accomplishes its purpose. Father, I pray that we would desire for that purpose to happen in us. And Lord, I just I, I thank you for each one that's here and each one traveling here, each one not able to make it. We lift lift them lift them all before you. We each family represented. And we bless we bless you and, and glorify you. Help me, Lord, as we, we go through this lesson tonight to to rightly share what is on your heart. I mean, to speak those things that, that would bring life and truth. Speak to and through me this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So, let's put this on. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, I think everybody's aware we've been going through this study. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Um, it's, it's, uh, this is our seventh lesson. And we're using this... Um, this, 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 that's actually the title of a book. Actually, that's what the cover of the book looks like right there. If you want to get it, I highly recommend getting it. We're probably not going to do like every single lesson in the book. I'm going to kind of pick, pick, pick and choose. But um, I am doing it a little bit different order than they're doing it in the book. I'm doing one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Um, if there's one that you really want us to do and you've got the book, uh, let me know so I make sure I do that one. Because um, uh, I want to make sure we get get all the ones that people are m- most interested in. But there, there's there's so many lessons in this book, and um, it's by Michael Heiser. He he put the book together. He was um uh, he was a, a professor in a Bible school, and like he's like totally excited to have all these Bible students in here, like all these people that want to study the Bible. This is fantastic. We're in a great time. Looking forward to studying the Bible. And he found out that you know. Many of the students in there really were like totally bored with being in there. Like, why are you here studying? It's because we've heard all this all our lives. And he said, really? He says, well, you've just challenged me. And he started to do lessons about things they've never heard before. He went into those parts of the Bible that we, we, we pass over. They're confusing or they're boring or they're perplexing or we don't understand them. And he started diving into each one of those and going, look how important this is. Hasn't it been cool if we've discovered some stuff that we've been going through here? You've been finding some things that are like, wow, this is like really helped open my eyes up to understanding this thing we call the Word of God. That, that these things that seem um, um, insignificant are actually hugely important. So that's what we're doing. That's the whole point of this study is, is to, to give us a, 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 um, an insight in some of these places in our Bible that, that seem to be um, uh, you know, that, that get skipped over or seem to be uh, perplexing, confusing. And, and we're like, what, why is that in there? What is, what is that? How, how does that actually inform us? How does that help us understand this thing we call God's Word? All right. So um, I'm not going to do a full review. I'm just going to hit some of the topics we've covered so far. We've talked about, you know, the ancient view of the, the cosmos, um, which is very different than ours. And once you understand it, you can read all the scripture. You can see, oh, that's what they're talking about. If you think, here's the problem. Most of the, the, most of the time, we approach the Bible from our point of view. 
from our knowledge background. And we read these words, and, and so we read them as though they were being said today, rather than what they would have meant when the original authors wrote them, when the original audience heard them. And so what we're trying to do is kind of get back to there. Because once you do that, we discover what it meant. Once we know what it meant, now we can find out what it means to me and my life and to our life and how it applies to us in the church. All right, so we talked about walking like an Israelite um, and and understanding that they were very much a people of their time and their culture. We, we we, we, We dove in a little bit about trying to understand inspiration. And what is what is insp- what is actually inspiration? Uh, and and we we looked at uh, um, what we call spell checking in the Bible, um, understanding uh, that that there are some places that there are some words that we don't we don't know the um, you know we we think it could be this but it could be that we don't actually know for sure what the original word is. You know, in Hebrew, I don't know how many people know this? Hebrew was originally written didn't have vowels. Well, imagine how many words in English you could put next to each other. You just put three consonants together. How many different words might you be able to make just by putting different vowels in there in different places? So, and quite frankly, you might think that's super confusing. You could actually do this. I challenge you. Take a paragraph, just something written random, and take all the vowels out, and you'll still be able to read it. You'll be able to go down, and you'll be able to read it. Your brain will just fill them all in. You'll just fill in all the vowels. You do it automatically. It's kind of cool. Well, that's the way ancient Hebrew was. And so by the time it comes to us, we've, we, there are a few places. It's not a lot, but there are some places where we're not quite sure what that original, because it could be this, it could be that. And in the context, it actually fits either way. And so those are important to know. Um, we talked about circumcision and why that was important. And then we saw how that actually applied uh, then we talked about Moses, the abandoned child in the basket case, right? Moses in the basket. And um, we discussed um, a tale of courage we never teach. That's where we went last week. It was a, a tale of courage we never, we, we never teach. Zipporah circumcising her son and atoning for Moses' lack of circumcision and calling him a bridegroom of blood. What did all that mean? So you have to listen to last week because I'm not going to re- redo it. But that was a fascinating and so those are some of the Old Testament topics we looked at. In New Testament so far, we talked about how Jesus declared war and this understanding of cosmic geography and, and, and terrestrial geography. And, and it was a real world change that Jesus brought. Um, uh, talked about angels, guardian angels, uh, hosting angels without knowing it. Um, you know, writer of Hebrews talks about that. We talked about uh, what a lot of times the New Testament will quote the Old Testament. And people, is that, is that really? Why does it sometimes seem a little different than if you go back and read the passage they're talking about? And we covered that. And we went and talked about the passage about Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. What did that mean? What does it mean he saw him like? When was he talking about? So we, we broke that down in detail. And then Jesus talks about the, the, that passage from the Old Testament, the healing serpent, the bronze serpent. And he uses that to parallel himself. Why did he do that? And we got into a lot of what that meant. It was really cool. So tonight what we're going to get into is um, we're going to get into what walking on water really means. What walking on water really means. Why did Jesus walk on water? Was he just kind of show off? Was it just because he could? I mean, look, if I could, I would do it just because I could. But that's not why Jesus did it. You know, I mean, like, that'd just be cool, right? It'd just be plain old cool. Want to walk on water? Hey, yeah. Why are you walking on water? Because I can. Yeah, but that's not, 
um, that's not why Jesus did. We're going to find out why he did it. Uh, there's meaning behind this. And it's interesting. I mean, this, is, this actually is in the notes. I'm going to throw this out there right now up front. It's a little, little tidbit. It's only in three of the Gospels. It's in Matthew. It's in Mark. And it's in John. It's not in Luke. Now, why? Um, I, we don't actually know why. We're not in Luke's brain. But I can t- tell you this. Luke didn't write his gospel to a Jewish audience. He's the only one that didn't write his gospel to a Jewish audience. The meaning of it has everything to do with the Old Testament. So it's interesting that Luke chose not to include that story. He must have known the impact of it and why, and the others knew definitely it would be impactful. And so he was choosing to put things in that would be impactful to his audience. Interesting, huh? So I just gave you a little commercial because that's not actually going to be in our lesson tonight. And then next week we're going to talk about is there really a sin offering? You know, in the Old Testament it talks about five different types of offerings in the book of Leviticus. Um, the the, um, the olam uh, korban, the, the burnt offering, the, um, the mincha korban, the grain offering, um, the shalamin korban, the peace offering, the chatah korban, the uh, sin offering, and the asham, uh, which is the guilt offering. It's right in the beginning of Leviticus. So um, we can even get into that a little bit. What are those all about? Why do they have five? You know, what's, why, do you, why do you have, what's, what's, that, what's the whole point of that? We'll touch on that a little bit. But that sin offering, that chatah korban, is that really a sin offering? So we're going to touch on that. And how does that apply to Jesus and us? All right. So that's next week. That's a commercial. So um, tonight we're getting into, like I said, if you're reading the book, um, you'll find there's all these lessons about the Old Testament. And then they flip over and do all the lessons about the New Testament. I'm kind of going back and forth. So we're not just doing all Old Testament, all new. I'm kind of keeping it, you know, some from each part of the Bible. All right. So tonight... What walking on water really means. Now, I'm quoting from Heiser here. This is how he opens up this section. He says, Tales of tempests battering ships inspire respect for the sea. It's a great line. I love that. That's why I had to quote it. You know, you, you hear about stories of, of great storms and, and, and ships um, uh, 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 surviving it. You know, that we had that movie. Remember that movie, The Perfect Storm? Right? And so it's tales of ships. Um, uh, there's there's just so many of them that, that have that inspire a deep respect for the sea. So in the Gospels, while the disciples were en route to Capernaum, the, the disciples watched these stories about the sea become a reality as the roaring wind transformed the waters around them. I mean, the, the waters just started to get, churn up crazy while they're in the boat and jesus isn't with them so they can't cry out to him he's not with them and as they were fighting against the waves as they're fighting against the wind they experience a miracle and so uh here it is in john this is the, the john's version of it in chapter 6 verse 19 this is what, what john writes he says when they had rowed about three or four miles that's a long way to row three or four miles when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Who might like, you know, that might make you just a little bit afraid. Even knowing the story, I promise you, if you saw that, you're going to go, oh, what, you know, what am I seeing? Even knowing the story. Um, so uh, I'm not going to read the whole story. You can go check it out. Most of us should know it. Um, but there was a major storm, and they see it, and there's even one version where Peter gets out, and he walks on water a little bit, and 
Um, and it's, it's really cool. Check them all out. But that's, that's beyond what we're going to do tonight. So this walking on water event, like I said, it's in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and John. Um, it is, it's very common, right? Secular society, you know, it's almost ubiquitous. Everybody knows Jesus walked on water, right? You know, it's like, you know, what do you want me to do, walk on water? You know, you, hear, you can hear people say that all the time. It's, that story is a very, very common story. It's, it, it symbolizes Jesus' life. You know, it would be like Jesus, walk on water. You know, it's like, I can't do that. Um, it's spectacular. It's unforgettable. Uh, now, these are all things that are, that are true for us. It's just like this amazing thing, okay? And, you know, magicians, they're magicians you try to imitate it, right? You know, they, they find some trick or way to, to make it appear that they're walking on water. Well, you know, when, when Jesus actually, you know, take a three or four mile trek out in a, in a raging sea. Let's see. Let's see that happen. Exactly. Go for a leisurely walk across the waves. <laughs> so, but now we got to remember this time period when this was written. This, is, this, this period of time is called the Second Temple Period. Some might have understood, heard it called the, um, uh, what's the other name for it? Um, yeah, Intertestamental Period. Thank you. The Intertestamental Period. It's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, somewhere around three, uh, three, four hundred BC, um, uh, starting about there and going to about um, to about a hundred BC or so, a hundred AD. That's that would be what's considered the Second Temple period. The Second Temple refers to the temple that um, that was b- uh, rebuilt when they came back from the exile out of Babylon. You know, when we were studying Daniel, for those that were here studying Daniel. When the exiles came back, they rebuilt the temple. And then Herod, the great, built that temple up and made it this huge, just incredible uh, uh, building project. Uh, uh, This this, this, um, an amazing building project. And that's referred to as the second temple. And, of course, that took a long time. So that's why they refer to that as the second temple period. So but and that's a very, uh, very common academic way of referring to that period of time. In that, um, so the second temple. So Jews of the second temple, Jews of that day. This this when this story has incredible deep and theological meaning. There's very rich Old Testament imagery and context going on in this story, and just by telling the story, see one of the ways that the Bible communicates and um, is is what's called it's called through narrative, and what the authors do. They know who their audience is. They know the audience's background. They know what the audience knows. And so they just weave all of these details into their stories that ties back to all of this rich background in history and theology without saying, I'm quoting this, I'm pulling from here. It's just part of the story, and it's expected that you as the audience, because that's your background, understand it. Now, I mean, here's an example. Anybody here in the medical field? Okay, we got one person, a couple of people in the medical field. All right, yeah. So if you meet someone else in the medical field, do you need to explain and define all of your terms when you're having a conversation? No. But if someone else were to come along and hear you talking, you know, might they be times when they have no clue what you're talking about? Absolutely. But you don't have to stop and go, well, you know, when it said in the textbook, when we studied this and here it was, you just automatically refer to it. Why? It's part of the narrative. It's part of the narrative. It's part of your story. Well, this is what's going on here. 
the whole Bible is filled this way. All the stories in the Bible are exactly like this. Every single story has this rich background to it. And it's drawing from one another. And the more we learn this, the more we're able to understand the whole thing. All right, so this is an Old Testament symbol, the sea. The sea is an Old Testament symbol. It's a very common symbol. When I say Old Testament, I'm not talking about just to the Jews. Across the entire ancient Near East, in all of the, um, uh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a common symbol. The sea is very unpredictable. Very unpredictable. I remember one time we were, um, we went out, I went out with um, some boys. They were called Sea Scouts. It was like Boy Scouts still in the water. They have Sea Scouts. And we took out this, this little, um, little sailboat. Uh, it was, it was uh, three adults and um, half a dozen or, or so boys. And we're going out. And we're in the bay. And we're just we're cruising along, uh, you know, sailing along not too far off the coast. And, uh, and, but um, you can see over here all of these clouds coming in. And you can see a rain squall out there. And so the guy who was the captain says, well, you know, we have to be careful. You see that out there? It's going to be coming our way. We, we just need to be a little bit careful. And so um, now I'm, I'm on the till. And so I'm, I'm you know, steering the, this sailboat back and forth on the, on, the t- on, the t- on the rudder, holding the rudder. And um, all of a sudden, out of the blue, literally, how many know that the wind gets there before the storm? <laughs> okay, put this together. Wind, sailboat. Okay? Wind, sailboat. That boat went like this. <laughs> And the, the guy who was the captain real fast, I mean, he was super fast, jumped in the sea, he goes, okay, I got it, and, you know, and he gets this back up, right? I'm like, that boat literally went like this. I was like, fortunately, it's got this super heavy keel, this weight on the bottom to keep it from flipping over. But there were some boats that did flip. I mean, this, that, that wind came in suddenly. The sea's unpredictable. We don't know. I mean, you kind of knew that it was coming, but it's unpredictable. It, and it represents this, this unpredictability literally represents cosmic disorder, chaos. It's how the Bible begins, actually. I wish we had time to, I could show it to you. But that very first verse of the Bible talks about this cosmic disorder. It says when the, when the, um, uh, and, and the creation was um, without form and void, the word there, without form and void, chaos, empty. Um, and, and the spirit of water was hovering over the deep. That word deep is abyss. It's pictured in the ancient world as just the deep, chaotic sea. And that's how creation happens in that first story. So this is, this is symbol is literally given to us in our first story in the, in the Bible. So um, the sea literally is contrary to God's design for order in the world. That's why it's pictured when God begins to create, everything he does is to set that chaos, that order. That's the first story. He's taking chaos and setting it in order. And how is he doing it? His word. He speaks. He speaks. He speaks. He speaks. He takes emptiness. He takes chaos. He takes the abyss. And he brings life. He brings order. He, he fills it up. He gets rid of the void and gives it life. So, now, in the ancient world, and this is all through in the Bible as well. You'll see it in lots of places in the Bible. The sea was actually depicted as an ancient sea monster. Two of the words that were used in the ancient world was the word Leviathan. Was the word Leviathan. Anybody heard Leviathan? Leviathan and Rahab. These are ancient mythical sea monsters. Um, 
that that are pictured representative of the sea itself. The Tanaim uh, is is another is a Hebrew word that that uh, um, that has a relationship there. All right, so the image of chaos is an untamed monster in a churning erotic, uh, not erotic, erratic sea was common throughout the ancient world. This was the, the ancient world. This was just a, a a normal picture of what how they understood the world. This this chaotic, untamed monster it was churning this erratic sea. Okay, now if you're living on land from your perspective, and you're looking at these things, the oceans and the seas, what are they? They're huge. They're vast. Anybody ever stand on the beach and just look at it and become at all with how big? I do. I go down to the beach. I was not too long ago. It's a few months. I was standing down on the, on the beach in Galveston, and just I get, I get this sense of overwhelm and awe just looking at the, the endless edge of the sea. Um, it's, it's uncontrollable. It's potentially deadly. It, there's, it's got terrifying unknown creatures in it. There's a great story um, of uh, Shackelford who took a, a patrol of men to go to Antarctica. They, they wanted to be the first, first ones to get to Antarctica, and they got frozen in. And, um, um, and I mean, it's an amazing story. He literally, they're, 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 I forget how many days it's over. It was more than one. It was like two, three years they were stranded. Um, and he literally brings all of his men back. But they talk about one of these stories where they're, they're, they're walking on these big old pieces of ice. And when I say big piece of ice, they're walking for, you know, like miles on these big pieces of ice. And they, these, there was a creature that literally came up out of the water. None of them had ever seen it before. It was this terrifying creature that was coming to attack them. Well, we know what it is now. But they had never seen it before, and fortunately, one of them did have a rifle, and it actually was a, was a good thing because they shot it and ate it and had some food. It was a big, you know, big creature. But this is this terrifying, you know, beast in the water. Yeah. So it's a really cool story. I, I recommend reading that story. That there was a one guy that had a heart attack, and they saved his life and everything. That was cool. Anyway, so in the ancient Mediterranean religions, um, the sea had important deities. And these important, I mean, there were important deities in the religions. And these important deities, um, what, they were, what they attempted to do was either destroy or subdue the sea dragon, the Leviathan, Rahab. And by doing so, by calming and taming the sea, they're the ones who bring and restore order. Now, there are a lot of the stories in the Bible actually are polemic responses to these pagan stories. No, it wasn't a sea creature. It was God who created the sea creature, the great sea creatures, the Tanaim. They're just, they're just, they're not, they're not mythical beings. They're, they're, they're large water animals that God created, and He did it by His word. And the order and the chaos is His word, not your God. Literally, the first story of Genesis is is a point for point polemic response to ancient Egyptian stories, ancient Mesopotamian stories, the ancient Canaanite stories. They, 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 Moses is writing a story um, that's responding to all of these ancient religions. And wh- wh- what looms large in the middle of this? This sea creature or sea character. All right. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, as I just said, he is the conqueror of chaos. Over and over and over in the Bible, he is the conqueror of chaos. When he establishes land, what does he say? See, this is your boundary. You go no further than this, this far and no more. That's the whole point of land appearing out of the sea. 
God has put chaos to a boundary point. And uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's something cool that we're going to see later. He imposes order in the cosmos. Yes, it's all dark, but God creates light, and he says, darkness, here's your line. You can't go past this point. From this point to this point, there's light. He creates order, and he bounds the chaos. Now, he leaves the chaos there for a time, for a purpose, but there's a time when he will get rid of it, and we'll see that. All right, so here it is in Job. This is Job talking about this. The author of Job writes this, verse 12. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Now, you all just learned something tonight, and you can read your Bible completely different. Look at that. That is Hebrew parallelism. That is the author telling you the same thing twice. But if you didn't know what Rahab was, you wouldn't have known he was saying the same thing twice. It's like, Rahab, is that talking about the, you know, the woman who hid the spies? No! It's talking about this mythical sea creature. And by saying he stilled the sea, he shattered Rahab. It's a poetic way. It's called a, it's called a couplet, right? It's the basic fundamental building block of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. It's the basic one, and, and they, the, the, the Hebrew poetry will give you a statement and will repeat that statement from a different angle to bring another point out. And so Yahweh stills the sea. Yahweh shatters Rahab. Now, you can, just, you can read your Bible different already. Verse 13, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Ha! Once again, so this makes us think, think like he's talking about all these different subjects. Well, he's got talking about sea. He's talking about Rahab. He's talking about serpents. Uh, um, no. The heavens being made fair is talking about the winds of the raging sea. God calms. God calms the winds of the raging sea. His hands pierce the fleeing serpent. That's once again the sea. God calming the sea. Do you see the poetry? How the author's using all of this imagery and symbolism and poetry to demonstrate God's the one who brings order out of the chaos. All right, let's look over in the book of Psalms. Here it is in the book of Psalms. This is in in Psalm 89, verse 5. And there are tons of examples. I'm just taking a few for us to kind of get a flavor of this. Here it is in Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, Okay, this is this isn't part of our study, but it's just I can't help myself. Um, that word "holy ones" in the New Testament is translated as saints. So, in the New Testament, when the writers refer to us as saints, they're actually connecting us to spiritual beings. Hmm. Because "holy ones" refers to the spiritual beings in the heavenlies. Unfortunately, I don't have no idea why translators just decide to say saints when they translate it here, and holy ones they translate it here. It's the same biblical word. There's no theological difference. Isn't that fascinating? But that's a different study. We might get to that one. All right, verse 6. For who in the sky is equal to Yahweh? Sky, heavens. Think heaven, sky. Who is like Yahweh among the sons of God? So the holy ones, the spiritual beings, sons of God. Remember Hebrew parallelism here. Verse 7. A God feared greatly in the council of the holy ones. For those who have been here for divine council study, they can see these terms again. The divine council, the holy ones, the sons of God. Awesome above all surrounding him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Yah. Yah is a short and firm of Yahweh. With your faithfulness surrounding you. 
You are ruling the surging of the sea. Interesting. So here's talking about the greatness of Yahweh above all of the heavenly hosts, all of the beings in the spirit world, all of the rulers of, of, um, from the heavenly places. He's the greatest. And how does it demonstrate him? He's the one who rules the chaos. He's the one that brings order to chaos. When its waves rise, you yourself still them. You yourself crush Rahab. There it is again. Now, if you didn't know, you'd think, oh, he's switching subjects, talking about something else. No, he's talking about this mythical being that represents the sea. You crushed this mythical being, this, this, uh, um, uh, this sea serpent, like one who is slain. You scatter your enemies with your strong arm. The heavens are yours, the earth yours as well, the world with its fullness, because you founded them, north and south. You created them. Tabor and Hermon shout joyfully over your name. And those mountains have meaning as well. But again, that's beyond tonight. Um, so what's going on? It, the, the, what, what he's doing here in, in this psalm, in the ancient world, the, 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 the cosmos and all this was a battle of the gods. That's how this all came about. And, the, and the, the, the psalmist is saying, no, it's not the battle of the gods. It's Yahweh who created all this. It's he who has a, a, um, a rulership all over this. It belongs to him. It is his. He's the one that brings order to all of this. This is no threat to him. This is no threat to him. You have a mighty arm. Your hand is strong. Your right hand reaches high. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loyal love and faithfulness come before your face. So, uh, so we, we get this, 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 uh, this poetry here. Now notice, um, uh, he talks about the power coming from his right arm. Now I'm going to throw something in here. If you were to go to John 12 and look at how John talks about Jesus in John 12, what... Uh, Old Testament symbol. Does anybody know? This is worth like, oh, this is a big one. This is worth 262 points right here. Anybody know what Old Testament symbol John uses to reference Jesus? The what? The dove? No. I, I read it in that poem there. The right hand, the right arm of God. 262 points, yeah. Woo! Yep. And we did not have that planned ahead of time. You know, for those of you who think that that's, you know, planned ahead of time. <clears throat> hmm. All right. So, um, all right. So now what's fascinating, when we move to the exodus of Egypt, guess what? What's the greatest, you know, next to Passover, the greatest miracle that happened? Crossing through the Red Sea. Now start put all this imagery into that event. Huh. Huh. Now take all this imagery. For us, it's just like cool that the sea parted, right? But take all of this imagery now and put it in light of what's going on here. Here it is in Psalm 74, referencing the Exodus. This is starting in verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monster on the waters. 
It's like, why would he talk about sea monster? Once again, because the sea symbolizes chaos and chaos in ancient world where these sea monsters, Leviathan, Rahab, and it's saying God broke all that. God, in, in fact, if you go back and read Exodus very carefully, we all know that the scripture says he defeated Pharaoh, but do you know it says God defeated the gods of Egypt, not just the Pharaoh of Egypt? Hmm. Hmm. It's multiple places, multiple places. It's there in the text. Now you, now you won't be able to not see it. Yeah. All right, verse 14. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. He's talking about when he divided the sea. When did he divide the sea? Exodus, at the Exodus. Yeah, if you said Exodus, give yourself 72 points. I'm giving big points tonight. All right, yeah. Um, you split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Verse 16, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. Verse 17, and you have fixed all the boundaries of the earth, and you have made summer and winter. So that Exodus events referred to there and, and they, they clearly saw this um, as, as in some of the symbolism, all right? So I'm trying to get how big this, this symbolism is looming large in the minds of the disciples. All right, so in splitting the sea, what does God do? When he splits the sea, he conquers the forces of evil, Leviathan, the, the, um, the sea creatures, the sea monsters, right? God delivers his people from those who would destroy them. You see, by destroying the forces of evil, what is he doing? Who is manifesting the forces of evil? Those who are trying to destroy his people. There's an entire army wanting to destroy them right there. They're manifesting the forces of evil. Everybody follow that? So when he destroys the sea, he's destroying what is what in the, in the same thing the things that are manifesting as a result of it all right so final victory final victory um when we come to the end of the age god's ultimate final victory when we get there guess how it is symbolically represented in the new testament just take a wild guess victory over forces of the sea victory over forces of the sea okay so um, now, we, those that studied Revelation with us will know this. Um, in a lot of ancient writings, you know, when we read a book, uh, the, the main, you know, we're looking toward, to get towards the end to really get to the, the thesis, to get to the, the climax, to get to the major port, part of the book. Well, in a lot of ancient literature, the main point's in the middle because it's written chiastically. They write it in a structure where they build to the main point and they build back from it. Well, Revelation's very similar. The, 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 the climax in Revelation for the people who were receiving the book was Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And there were two great beasts in Revelation 13 and 14. One from land and one from where? The sea. And they were waging war against the saints. And who's ultimately destroyed? These great beasts. These beasts of chaos. And that, that is depicting the war that went on in heaven in Revelation 12. After Jesus came, died, uh, uh, rose, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's a war in heaven, and the serpent is cast down with a third of the angels. Right? 
then that's de how is that depicted? It's de depicted by the great sea beast and the great land beast. And ultimately, who is destroyed? They, they wage war against the saints. They wage war against the believers. And ultimately, they're destroyed. This is all in the book. But if you know the symbolism, now you know the symbolism. Now you can understand what they were trying to communicate. You know, the book of Revelation is it was written to believers in order to understand that this world, we are going to have tribulation, and, and, and it, there is chaotic forces of evil behind it, yet in the end, we are to stand because we will have victory with Christ. His victory will be our victory. That's the point of the book of Revelation. It's not a secret key to when he comes back. That's not the point. Anyway, that's not tonight either. So anyway, all right. Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Talk about that, that day. That day was one of the ways they talk about uh, end times, final victory, God's final victory. And how is it being depicted in Isaiah? How is Isaiah picturing this? Picturing it by this beast of chaos being slain. Okay? Now, now, once again, why are we talking about this? This is all the worldview of the disciples. They know all this. They understand all this. It's how they look at the world. It's how they understand the world. All right? So, in the New Testament, the end times image is given to us how? It's given to us in a new heaven and a new earth coming down. Are we not looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth? Peter talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. John talks about it in Revelation. It's in multiple places, the new heaven and the new earth. But in Revelation chapter 20, 21, it actually says the sea will be no more. Check this out. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Does that mean there won't be any water or anything like that? No. Final victory. God has conquered just like Isaiah prophesied, he's borrowing from this picture of Isaiah and making it plain right here. Leviathan is crushed. Chaos is gone. The sea is no more. This great place of, of chaos and, and uh, torment is destroyed. It's right there in plain language in Revelation. Fascinating. All right, so... One more, one more uh, motif we're going to use, and we'll have some conversation. Daniel has this vision. Those of us who, who, who are here, actually, I need to do this. I'm a little dry. So Daniel, um, he has this vision. Really fascinating. The book of Daniel, those who study the book of Daniel with us. Daniel's kind of written this like, almost like two halves. And the first half are all these, these incredible stories about God's faithfulness to and through Daniel in the midst of um, um, being exiled out of the land. And what's really interesting is that all these people have these dreams, and, and they keep coming back to Daniel, and Daniel is the one who's given the interpretation of the dream for all these individuals. So this is all in the first half. But when you get to the second half, Daniel's the one having the dreams, and he's going, I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, it's almost like Hebrew humor here, you know, putting this contrast out there. And, and he has to have spiritual beings come and interpret these dreams for him. Now, once again, 
the, the climax of Daniel, the, the main thrust of Daniel is Daniel 7. This, is, this, this chapter is literally the hinge for the whole book. It connects the front half to the back half. And, it's, and it talks about, it, it, it's the culmination of all of history. All of history culminates right here in Daniel 7. And he has this dream. He has this vision. And what does he see? He sees a raging sea. And out of this raging sea come four great beasts. And the, the sea is storm-tossed. It's all of the imagery of sea. It's all of the imagery of chaos, the Leviathan, the Rahab. And out of that sea come these great beasts. Now, what's fascinating is that these beasts are not aquatic animals. They're not what you would expect to come out of the sea. And we're supposed to see that. We're supposed to see a, a lion with wings came out of the sea. How, why would a lion with wings come out of the sea? Unless the sea means something more than just the sea. You see what it's coming out of? You see this? And they understood that. They know that. This is a rich symbol in their culture, in their time. It made sense to them. Okay? And so I'm going to read it to you so we can pick up on the poetry. We can pick up on, the, on this. It says, this is in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Notice he says, stirring up the great sea. It's just automatically, and, and it stirred up the, the heavens, so there's spiritual things going on here. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was, made, and it was uh, lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And, and I, I, if you want to, uh, we did an in-detail de, in depth breakdown of all this imagery and symbolism in doing Daniel, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's available online. You can, you can pull it up. I think it's on the YouTube channel if you want to get a breakdown of all, all of this means. I, I don't have time to do it tonight. Um, I'm just saying it's available to go there. But just pick, just listening to the richness of the, of, the, of the text. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. A bear coming out of the sea? Okay? It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. And then after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. A, 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 a leopard with wings, again, coming where? Out of the sea. And, and, and the beast had, had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. Now, what we have to get here is Daniel actually had this dream. What he's trying to say is he's like waking up with night sweats with what he saw. He's like literally sh uh, shaking because of how terrifying this is of what he saw. And he's trying to express it. And this sea symbolism is part of it. 
It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. When it says speaking great things, don't think like it was a great orator. Mean, arrogant, proud, boastful things, putting itself in the place of God. So, that, that, that little one come up, this is Antichrist himself. That little one, that little horn, that's Antichrist. And again, that's all in the study we did, we can see it. Then what happens? What happens in his, in his vision? God appears, the Ancient of Days appears, and he literally sits in his heavenly court. There are thrones that are established, and he sits down among all these thrones, and he begins to judge these beasts. These beasts who were devouring among humanity. These, uh, um, and, and, and in the midst of that judging, the Son of Man appears. After they've been judged, the Son of Man appears, and, and he is given an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. He's giving an everlasting dominion. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That means in the form of a human is what that means. One in the form of a human. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That word serve is equivalent to the word worship. Reserved everywhere else for Yahweh alone. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I want us to put a couple little pieces of this imagery together. He literally has a, has a picture, a vision in his mind of all of the history of humanity. And notice where the authority of the worldly nations were coming from. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against spiritual forces of wickedness, against rulers in high places. And what do they do? There's other, if you read the text, you go back and read Daniel 7. They make war against the saints. They make war against the people of God. But yet, there is that final victory, the new heavens, the new earth, the return of Christ. It, you know, multiple places, by his very appearance, destroys the Antichrist. Just his appearance. 
And to him is giving this everlasting kingdom. And that is the kingdom we are literally in in this very moment. We are literally in that kingdom in this very moment. No wonder Paul calls this a spiritual war. All right. Now, here's a quote Heiser. All of this in imagery informs John's account of Jesus walking on the sea during the storm. All this imagery we talked about, the disciples, all this is in their minds. All this is in their head and more. We just, we just kind of jumped across the mountaintops tonight. Just, we, we dipped our toe in the water. <laughs> Put our foot in the sea just a little bit, just to get a taste. I mean, imagine growing up in it. Imagine it's, just, it's, it's all you, it's, it's what you understand. It's the way you see the world. Okay, imagine that. And then imagine this event just happens in front of you. What does walking on water tell us about Jesus? And before I go what Heiser has in here, I thought this would be a perfect time for us to open up and have a little conversation. What do you think? Walking on water means. I mean, what are you seeing? See? Leviathan? He was showing, so I'm, I'm repeating this so people can hear it. Huh? So he was showing that he had authority over what people feared in Leviathan and Rahab. Okay, good. I like that. I like that. What else? What else might all what what might Jesus be telegraphing by walking on the water? What did it what what was the disciples' response when they saw him walking on the water? It was a ghost. So what was their response? They were afraid. Why would it have had to have been a ghost? What might it have meant if it wasn't a ghost? And why might it have been a ghost in light of this imagery? Oh, there you go. Come on. Yeah, come on, come on. What, what what demonstrates authority if it's underneath of you or if you're standing on top of it? Hmm. And what does the sea represent? Chaos. And where's Jesus? Walking on it. In no way afraid of it. Demonstrating he's, I love what you just said, and it's dead on. Jesus is not simply telling who he is. You see, most people say, well, you know, I want to see the scripture where it says Jesus says, I am God. Hello? Look at all the imagery we just studied, and look at what he did. Let me ask you, we say it all the time. What speaks louder, actions or words? What did Jesus say? Is it simpler to say, uh, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? That you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. 
You see, it's, it's all throughout the text. But we don't, when we don't know the background, we miss these things. But now that you know it, it's like, oh, you can't unsee it. It's cool. What else? What else is, is going on here? What else might be? Anything else? What else is Jesus saying? What else, is, what else does walking on water mean? Go ahead, please. You can have five times in a row if you want. I promise you, five people around you will say, take mine, take mine, take mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah, we can overcome by trusting in him through our faith. So, so what you're saying is, I'm just, again, I've got to repeat this so people can hear it. So when, when Peter sees this, Peter's like, Lord, if this really you, if it's not just a ghost, once again, let me just add this in there. I don't know that this for a fact is what's going on in the text, but what hits me is, why might they think it's a ghost? Well, number one, people don't walk on water, but number two, this represents spiritual forces, and so they're seeing spirits. Hmm, so, uh, but anyway, um, so here's Peter saying, if it's really you, Lord, call me to come to you. Now, notice, Peter doesn't assume the ability to do it in and of himself. He assumes only the ability to do it if he has the Word of God. And by placing his trust in the Word of God, he's able to do that which cannot be done in the natural. And so the very thing that causes him to fall isn't the fact that he's standing on water. It's that he stops trusting in the Word of God over the natural. Fascinating. And that's what you were saying? Perfect. I love it. I love it. What else? What else are we learning here? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. In fact, you just, oh, I'm so tempted. You just literally dove into a a major theme of the atonement called Christus Victor. Exactly. (laughs) And and what it talks about is that that on the cross, Jesus um, became the victor over the, the, the forces of evil. But the whole theory of atonement says it wasn't just the cross. It was the fact that he came as a human. It was the fact that he lived a sinless life. It was the fact that he demonstrated over and over through, through uh, not only his love, not, not only truth, but in demonstrating of the power of his life and what he did on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension that all demonstrate Christus victor, Christ as victor over the forces of evil and the forces of chaos, crushing Satan. And and now you added one other thing because you quote Romans 16, right? Okay, yeah, because she she added another little piece to this. This is a little extra piece here. This is for us. This is this this will preach. So thank you. Anyway, uh, and again, she didn't give me that ahead of time. We did not talk. You know, <laughs> um, you should. <laughs> I do. But anyway, um, so there's a little verse in Genesis. When the enemy 
uh, obfuscates human um, position on earth and, and brings death and destruction and brings mankind into submission to fear, slavery, and death. And so we get this Genesis 3, we get the curse that results from this. And But notice in the curse, in, in every statement of the curse, there's also a statement of grace. So he says this curse, he pronounces this curse for the woman uh, about childbirth, about desiring the position of her husband. And then he says, however, uh, your seed, go ahead. Yes, it says your seed, um, you will have a seed and from that the, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And so if you carefully read the Old Testament, and why all these genealogies? Because they're looking for the seed. They're chasing the seed. This is prophesied from the beginning. And so they're giving these genealogies trying to find the seed. And it's prophesied over and over who that seed's going to come from. It's going to come from Abraham. He's going to bless all nations. It's going to come from uh, uh, Isaac specifically. It's going to come from Jacob specifically. It's going to come from one of his 12 sons. Oh, we find out that's going to be Judah. We find out from Judah it's going to very specifically be David. And it comes on down this seed. Now, so if I were to ask you, who is the prophesied seed of Genesis 3, who would you say? Yeah, we would all naturally say Jesus, but that's not what she read in Romans 16. Read what you said in Romans 16. You have to get back there. What she said in Romans 16, I'll just give it to you. She said, uh, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Our feet. Why? Because where did the seed of Jesus go on earth? Bingo. You think you're insignificant, don't matter, you're here by accident, have no meaning and purpose? Wow. That's surely not what God thinks. Alright. So let's let's jump in and see what Heiser has to say. What does Heiser say? Jesus Christ, Lord over the sea. Alright, so John identifies Jesus as the Son of Man, to whom the Father has given the authority to execute judgment. Um, and here it is. Um, this is in John 5, 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John's telling us. Now, who was the Son of Man? We read this prophesied in Daniel. He's the one who inherits all of the kingdoms after, uh, um, of, of earth, right? He was the one with the everlasting kingdom. And John's saying, that Son of Man in Daniel, it's right here. This is Jesus. He's coming right out and saying it, making it plain. Who what? is now the one who is Lord, conqueror over the sea and these beasts. All right. Then this is in Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So they arrested Jesus. They seize him. They take him to Caiaphas, and they have this, this, this you know, mock fake court um, in which they're accusing him. And Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter's watching this. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They're trying to find somebody to lie about Jesus so they can accuse him, use the lies to accuse him, and put him to death. I mean, it's all right there. They're looking for false testimony. 
But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And the reason why they found none is because they couldn't get two to agree. Yeah. And so at last, two came forward. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, well, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Look at these. Look at what they're saying. These, you know, honest, good men accusing you of this. What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? I mean, this is what's going on. This is really happening. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you were the Christ, the Son of God. He said, it's like, okay, all right, no more. No more trying to find false witnesses. Let's just hear it straight from you. Just tell us. Just tell us plain out. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the living God? Now, Jesus says this. You have said so. Now, that is a Hebrew idiom. You have said so is a Hebrew idiom. And, and it's, it's equivalent to our idiom of saying, you said it, buddy. That's what it means. It's a Hebrew idiom that says, you said it, buddy. All right? And it keeps going. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He literally just called himself that divine human being who inherits all the kingdoms of the world and the worship of mankind. That's me. The one we just read about in Daniel. Now, how do we know that's what they understood? Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now heard his blasphemy. You see, if it's not true, it's blasphemy. It's only blasphemy if it isn't true. What is your judgment, they answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? So by Jesus walking on the water, he's putting himself, he is demonstrating himself as this son of man being. Number one. Number two, John also asserts repeatedly that, jo- that Jesus is God incarnate. In John's gospel, Jesus evokes the divine name, the I am, seven times in reference to himself. Seven times, and it's seven. That's an interesting number, isn't it? The number of perfection, the number of completion. There are seven times. That's not an accident, guys. All right, so let's take a look at him real fast. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In uh, John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you hear all, every one of them reflecting Yahweh? The bread of life. Who's got the bread of life? The resurrection. Where does resurrection come from? The way, the truth, the life. The very essence of life and being itself. You think Jesus wasn't clear about who he was? I am the true vine. Now, there's two more statements that Jesus makes. These are two I am statements that, that, don't, that, that all he says is I am. But if you look them up in most of our Bibles, most of our Bibles add a he in there that's not in the Greek. They'll say I am he, I am he. But that's not what in the Greek. The Greek simply says I am. And there's two places, and I'll show you those. 
Um, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, now we're not, obviously not talking about his birth life because he was born, you know, millennia after Abraham. And yet he is referring to him existing prior. Now, when he's prior, it doesn't mean simply time. It also means greater. Prior. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Here, one more time. So they, and, and so how do we know that that's what he meant by it? Because they knew it. They knew exactly what he meant by it. They picked up stones to stone him. He just called himself I am. We need to kill him. The text tells us this. All right, but chapter 18, Yeshua, who knew everything that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, whom do you want? So he's, he's in the garden, and soldiers come to arrest him, and there's a whole group there, and he stands in front of him and goes, who do you want? And so they tell him, and this, I'm quoting this from um, the complete Jewish Bible because it, it's the only one I could find that didn't actually smooth over the I am with an I am he. All the others had I am he. This is the only one that's, that actually gives the I am. Um, and it says, Yeshua from Nazareth, from Nazareth, that's Nazareth, Nazareth. They answered, he said to them, I am. Also standing with them was Yehuda, the one who had betrayed him, that's Judas. Now, when he said, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. How many put that up in the text? They're there. These are soldiers who are there to arrest him. They're not there afraid of him. They're, they're with weapons. He's not without weapons. He stands forward. He's, who are you looking for? Looking for Jesus in Nazareth. I am. And what happens? They fall down. Okay. Arrest me. Just making it known that I'm letting you. I'm doing this willingly. So, this is when John brought up. Here, Heiser points this one out. John's oneness with the Father. The Father in him and he in the Father. I and the Father are one. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What is he trying to say here? He's trying to say that his actions speak louder than his words. And his words say everything. His words are loud. But if you don't believe them, well, what do you think walking on water means? So, Heiser, um, I'm about to close out here. For John, a Jew familiar with the Old Testament, the image of Jesus walking on the water was a dramatic portrayal that Jesus is Yahweh. The one who subdues the forces of chaos and imposes his will on the waters and everything the waters represent. The kingdom of the Son of Man had begun and all forces opposing God's ordained order would now be defeated like jesus's disciples we can find comfort in knowing that the one who treads upon the volatile sea can subdue whatever chaos threatens to overwhelm us the same one lord if that's truly you call me to come unto you come on come on come to me It's truly me. 
truly mean? Yeah, now we know what walking on water really means. <laughs> Is that not cool? Now we get to get a chance to, to see the beauty of this thing we call our Bible. Hmm. All right, so next week, is there really a sin offering? Is there really a sin offering? We're going to talk about that. But right now, when we, when we close out in prayer, Lord, I pray right now that every one of us would hear the beck and call of your Spirit who is calling us to step out and come to you. You, the same Lord who walked on water, are over all of the forces of chaos in this world. You beckon, you call us to you. In fact, we wouldn't even be hearing your voice except you come to us first. May we find great comfort in understanding that you not only said who you were, you demonstrated it. And you not only demonstrated it for your disciples then, you demonstrate it to us now. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Whatever it is, whatever it is they may be experiencing, going through, struggling with, wrestling with, that they would bring, that we would bring the chaos of our lives to the order of your spirit and your word. Move in us. Reorder our lives. Help us to, to return to you, to turn from those things which are selfish in our own lives and submit and surrender to you. Father, we thank you for the beauty of what you have preserved for us. May we appreciate the poetry, the symmetry, the beauty by which you seek to communicate your love your passion for us. May we reciprocate with our lives surrendered to you. May it not be about the few moments we spent together and the words we heard in here, but what we take with us and carry out the door. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So, um, again, I'm not going to have a Q&A time uh, I'd rather y'all spend a few minutes fellowshipping one another. If you have a question, that's why I kind of I'm going to I'm kind of changing up a little bit. We've done this a couple of weeks now. I'm going to have that that kind of that little discussion time in the middle in lieu of Q and A at the end. So if you have questions, you can bring them up then. But if you have a question, I'll be down here. Bring them down here. So it's not that not that I'm not going to answer your questions. I just would rather you spend a few moments fellowshipping one another. If you if you have a prayer need, please. In fact, does anybody have a prayer need tonight?